Hi, and welcome. Buckle up for a new episode of Beyond the Green Line, the only podcast hooking you up for a virtual coffee date with some of the leading change makers, industry experts, and everyday activists in environmental and agricultural sciences. So pop in your headphones, go for a walk, and get ready for inspiration, ideas, insights, and real-life stories beyond the green line we balance along. Hello and welcome to this episode of Beyond the Green Line. I'm your host, Chanel gleason Willie, and our guest today is Colin Sice, inventor of the technique pasture cropping and owner of Winona near Gulgong in New South Wales. This is a 2,000-acre sheep, wool and merino ram breeding stud, as well as a cereal grain cropping and native grass seed business. Colin also runs one of the largest Kelpie working dog studs in the world, selling dogs across the globe. Hi, Colin. It's great to have you with us today. Thank you. So tell me about your property, Winona. What's it like and how does it fit with the local natural environment? Okay. As you said, there's 2,000 acres here. It's granite soil. It's not highly fertile soil. Our family's been here since the 1860s. My great-grandparents settled here in the 1860s. And it's quite a good mix of, of, of uh, different tree species, and now it, it, it is restored native grassland. It wasn't always, and that's, I guess, part of my story of restoring a grassland and how I went about it, really. And also, I guess, a, a lot of the reason I restored the grassland is previous land management by our, by, by, sorry, by my ancestors, really, really. So I have a lot of respect for what you've done, especially because you just told me that your property is on granite sands. The property that I live on is also granite sands, so I know just how difficult that is yeah. to actually work with and to grow pretty much anything. So <laughs> I have an awful lot of respect for that, for what you've done. So can you tell me about what pasture cropping is? Pasture cropping is a different way of cropping, and if we just go back on how agriculture developed or, or evolved, when we started growing crops, as in the Middle East, in Mesopotamia, 10,000 years ago. From that point on, the way crops were grown was, was always killing everything that was in there, in the paddock, except for the crop we're growing. And I guess this is the first real change in, in the way crops are grown for 10,000 years, really, because what I'm doing here is growing crops into living but dormant perennial grass and perennial native grass in my case. So it, we, we're not killing the grass that we're sowing, sowing the crop into. Mm. And the crops that you're sowing in, that's oats, wheat and cereal, rye yeah. uh, as your annual. And as you said, yeah, grow, uh, sowing that into your perennial native grass. So that, I guess that process, how do you actually do that? What sort of machinery do you use? Yeah. Before I go into machinery, pasture cropping is actually perennial cover cropping. We're starting to hear more and more about cover cropping, mostly coming from the US and, and countries like that. But really all that I'm doing here is uh, there's no great new technology needed to plant the crop using zero-till uh, sowing equipment, which is fairly standard. Many cereal croppers are using zero-till machinery now. So that's not, not new, and I've, I've, I'm using that type of machinery to sow, sow the crops here. So a key question for many farmers who are considering adopting pasture cropping would be what is the gross margin per hectare? 
of doing this. And by that, I mean, what's the margin for the annual crop plus any grazing value or any other value that you can derive from the land? And I guess let's look at a farm in your area as an example, because I assume it would change greatly considering where the farm's located and what annual crop you want to grow, as well as the commodity market values. So I guess just a general idea would be great. Yeah. Gross margin or profit is is actually greater with with pasture cropping. And that's because we've got quite a few different enterprises that are stacked, which I call enterprise stacking, on the same paddock throughout that 12-month period. Now, if we start to incorporate the lot, comparing it to say a, a, just a cereal crop on its own, a cropping person cropping. Now, so to start with, the crops are about the same yielding as conventional crops. A little bit more variable, but uh, a bit variable from year to year, but uh, averaging pretty close to the, to, to the same yield. But on top of that, we've got grazing, and, and in the case here, we're running merino sheep, grazing right up to the point of sowing. And sheep are actually used to prepare the paddock to plant the crop in. And how that works is that we're mulching the, the, the native grass on, onto the soil surface, adding manure and urine from the sheep, which adds nutrients which the crop uses. Growing a crop, we can, we can then use that for grazing as well. But on top of that, we're also harvesting native grass seed off, off the paddocks as well. And the native grass seed is often worth more than the crop is worth. So the, the value yeah, the yeah, profit, big there. Yeah, the profit is a lot higher than, than conventional agriculture. The but only only if you're adding all those things together, which isn't usually possible in, in most agricultural practices. Mm. With the the crop that you sow, is it at the same density as what I guess a traditional farm would do? Yes, yeah, so some the same. We're still using fertilizer here, conventional fertilizer. But in saying that, over time, uh, we've been able to reduce our fertiliser as well, um, and that's related to soil health, and that's a big player in this, which maybe I should, I should address later in this, this, this talk. But So everything's reasonably conventional. The, the, the sowing rate's about the same, but I might add now, 10 or 12 years ago, I started to sow multi-species crops as well, not just a single species into a grassland, but a multi-species crop, which which is about ten species in, in one, and planting them, that adds more value as well. In that it's incredibly high, these multi-species crops are an incredibly high grazing value, and we can still harvest the cereal crop from that multi-species crop as well. So, with the native grass seed that's coming off these these blocks, is that mostly for a reveg work that people purchasing that? Yeah, it, it, it goes to a few different pe- uh, type, types of enterprises. The bulk of it's going for revegetation work, uh, as in some of it's going to coal mines and things like that, which seems a dreadful waste of very high-quality native grass seed. But quite a lot is also going to, to farmers, mainly because some of the grassland species, as we go south in, in Australia, like into Victoria, South Australia, they've lost those species. So... Some of the farmers in those areas are re-sowing these the species and restoring the grasslands. Yeah, right. What sort of species do you produce the seed for on your property? The majority of the ones here that we're harvesting and selling are summer species, which is common names are red grass, 
warrego summer grass and green summer grass. Two of those warrant the warrego and a green summer grass is just little round seeds. Once they're clean, they they, they can be sold through a normal seed box for people doing re veg work. Mm. And going back to I guess your whole your whole system that you have on your property of the the pasture cropping and the native seed and the the animals as well. I guess it Originally, did you take the idea of rotational grazing and adapt it and add to it and I guess make it a, a better system in for improving the soil? Was that the aim of why you originally decided to do this? Yeah, I, I adopted holistic grazing management, which is really the work that Alan Savory did, mm-hmm. adopted that and the grazing component of that is, is very similar to what Alan developed. But what I'm using it for is combining it with growing crops, as in with pasture cropping, with, with really big mobs of, of sheep in the process of, of preparing the paddock to plant the crop. It's, an, it's a very important component of, of growing crops. Mm. And what sorts of challenges did you encounter, I guess, that you had to overcome, which were, were different from what, a, say, a traditional farmer would have been uh, finding as challenges for planting a crop or, or gra- raising sheep? I guess the first main challenge was being tolerant of being called a rat bag. Uh, <laughs> a rat bag? <laughs> Why do people call you a rat bag? <laughs> well, I mean, if you think about it, anyone that does anything different is, is often ostracised. I wasn't ostracised, but it was so different from what anyone else has ever done before, not well, even the grazing part of it, but the pasture cropping certainly was. So because crops have never been sown that way before, it was totally different. And it is still different in many ways to, to what the way crops have always been sown. Um, that's the biggest hurdle or was the biggest hurdle. And, and to ha- ha- have self-belief to know that mm. this, is, this is, well, I knew it was, was working, so that wasn't a problem. But having the confidence to, to continue, which is why people often don't change. You know, we often hear oh, people should, farmers should change and do it a better way or whatever. It's not that easy to change. Yeah, definitely not. Was it your agronomist calling you a rat bag as well? Oh, yes. Just about every, just about every <laughs> agronomist in the world. However, some scientists were really supportive and the, those, those scientists were, were ecologists, mostly an ecologist really understand diverse systems and they were they were supportive and I guess the the main scientist that, that was of great support was Dr Christine Jones but CSIRO uh, scientists did some work here and that was mostly an ecological study and over the years this property is one of the most now is one of the most researched properties in Australia so there has been support, but early early days not. Yeah, so I guess that's uh, leads straight into my, my next question. I wanted to ask around that ecological space: is what improvements have you seen in the last twenty five years that you've been doing this pasture cropping um, yeah. technique on your property? Yeah, the greatest thing that pasture cropping does is that it will stimulate the germination of seed, dormant seed, and in my case, native seed, perennial seed. They're sitting in the soil. That seed could have been sitting there for decades. And so I stumbled across a, a way of restoring grasslands very rapidly. Providing this is seed in the soil, <clears throat> we can restore those grasslands quite quickly. And have you seen any, I guess, improvements in the quality of the crop that comes off these blocks or in the, the soil health or even that animal health? 
the health of the crop, we actually we've measured many things here. What we haven't done and, and certainly should do is measure, I guess, the nutrient value of the grain. And we've certainly measured all the soil and certainly, interestingly, you start with soil carbon has increased by about 200% here on, on the property. All the nutrients, as in soil nutrients, I mean trace elements and everything, have increased by an average of 172%. That's impressive. Yeah, that's including nitrogen, phosphorus, the whole whole lot have increased. And that, that's not supposed to happen. At agriculture, we always get a decrease or a decline in soil nutrients and a decrease in everything. In other words, we can't continue to farm the way we farm because the wheels are falling off very rapidly. We can't keep supporting that with fertilisers and, and pesticides. Yeah, definitely a downward spiral that things like, I guess, pasture cropping and regen ag are hopefully going to start turning around. Yeah, yeah. So you've received many accolades over the years, including Conservation Farmer of the Year in 2005, Australian Carbon Farmer of the Year in 2007, and many others, uh, including the most recent, the New South Wales Regional Achievement and Community Award in 2015. And later that year, the Melbourne Weekly Times called you a visionary and suggested that you are one of the top six most influential farmers of the world. That's quite a list of achievements and I didn't even list them all. So can you give me a bit more, I guess, context and information about your journey and how you got to where you are today? That's a good question. Uh, (laughs) There's there's actually nothing special about the journey, (laughs) well, other than the the reason I changed, the reason I I, I do things differently is that in 1979 we got a major bushfire here which burned us out totally, lost 3,000 sheep killed in it and every building on the property, all the fences gone. It was like an atomic bomb went off. And so... I, and that was at about the time I was starting to take over the property from my father. And so it went from going okay financially to instant broke overnight. And I, I had to find out a way of, of surviving on the property with very, very low inputs. In fact, it had to be more than low inputs, it had to be no inputs because I couldn't afford to, put, to do any, anything. So I developed very, very low input agriculture from that time on when no one was talking about that stuff. Mm. And and that's where all most of this come from. It was, out, it was out of a need to survive, really. And interestingly, one of the things that, that I think was a great advantage to me was that I actually have no academic training. Now, there's nothing wrong with academic training at all. There's not a criticism of that at all. But because I had no academic training, the stuff I was developing and inventing I didn't know that it couldn't be done, and and it just made made perfect sense to me. And all I was doing really was mimicking natural systems. And I thought, oh, Mother Nature's got to be right. It can't be wrong. So if I go that way, it's got to work, and it does. So, but if I was academically trained, I'd have talked myself out of doing the innovative stuff that I did. Oh, oh, definitely. I think too much knowledge can actually stifle creativity a lot of the time and ignorance is bliss sometimes. <laughs> In my case, it was. <laughs> so, so practically, what did you actually start with? So, if you, so you said a fire came through and basically took out the whole property. Where did you actually start? What was the first thing that you did? Yeah. 
It's interesting. I've got a good friend called Daryl Clough. Daryl Clough is a neighbouring, not an immediate neighbour, but he lives over the other side of the hill. Now, Cluffy's also <laughs> very innovative, but at that time he was, he, he was part-time land care coordinator. So Cluffy had come out to the property here with land care business and we'd sit around at the end of the day and, and have a few beers, as you do. <laughs> and one of these nights we, were, we had about 10 or 12 beers <laughs> and that's really where the, the idea of pasture cropping came from. Daryl Clough and I... Uh, Spitballing over the beer. (laughs) After about 10 or 12 beers, he seemed to get a bit creative. (laughs) So, yeah, that's where the the original idea came came from. Why are we killing all these these native grasses when they've gone gone to sleep or gone into winter dormancy? Why are we trying to kill them? Why don't we just keep them alive? And so that's what we did. So did you have any hesitation at all? Did you think in your head oh, yeah, this is definitely going to work? Or did you originally approach it with a little bit of scepticism? Some scepticism, but what I've always done here, anything that I've done and tried, which has been a lot of different things, I've always done it very carefully, um, financially carefully. In other words, on just a small area to see see whether it's going to work or not. I'd made sure there was no financial risk in it. Well, I didn't have any money to risk anyway, those early days. So... Mm. It always had had to be that, but I it, it just made perfect sense. Um, even next morning when we sobered it up, it still made sense, which was unusual. <laughs> but <laughs> it made sense because that's what happens in grasslands. Like when when one grass goes dormant for the for say for the winter, where the summer grass goes dormant in the winter, the winter species then then start to grow, and vice versa. Mm. When the winter species go dormant in the summer. The summer grass is great. That's all. That's mm. all I was doing, really. I was just mimicking natural system. And it's interesting, though, that your your cover crop, your um, yeah. cereal cropping, doesn't outcompete those native grasses to the point where they do get stunted or just don't grow as well. But obviously, that doesn't happen. No, the opposite. Actually, the crop enhances the, the grasses, enhances the grasses to grow more, certainly more vigorously. And as I said before, increasing diversity, the grassland continues to increase in species diversity, So, and the crop is doing that. The reason why is gets a bit complex, probably more than I need to go into now, but the crop is actually feeding red exudates or sugars pumping into the soil and feeding microbes, which then kickstarts the whole process. Uh, that's oversimplified, but basically that's what's happening. Yeah. Okay. So, so it's just it's improving the entire system, and there's more of pretty much everything available. That's right. Yes. Yeah. And and it's it's complementary. It doesn't nothing's antagonistic. Everything's complementary to each other or everything else, as natural systems are. Mm. One of your other passions is farmer education, and I guess this ties to that. So you also uh, assist or run support programs, and you've obviously allowed a lot of scientific study on your property. So this is, I guess, how pasture cropping became, has grown to be used all over the world. So what are some of the best ways that you've found to actually communicate what you do and how you do it with other farmers and land managers? I do it in a few different ways. Like, for example, I've only just come back this week uh, from Victoria doing a series of workshops down there. I did five down there over a couple of weeks. They're full-day workshops and, and it's 
well as going through presentation then out, out in the paddock, doing paddock walks. One way I'd, I'd do that, as well as um, on, on property, I help people get started with a lot of this stuff, doing one-on-one on property. But probably the best way to, that I've found is with some groups I'm working at as a, as a mentor, what happens and why people struggle to change, they need to, no, they need to change, but even though they've got the, all the information to change, they don't have the confidence to continue with it. And then everyone around them tell them, says they're a total lunatic because they're doing things differently to them. But if you, get a, if you keep people together as a group and just to give, keep giving them confidence and they give each other confidence, then they'll move forward and, and just adopt a lot of really good and interesting things. Yeah, that's such a good point. And in agriculture, the one thing that I've always found is because it is such a, a seasonal way to approach uh, what you're doing, you know, it's, it's seasonal work, it's, you know, everything is seasonal. The feedback loop to whether you've done it right or whether you've done it wrong, whether it's working or not, is is quite drawn out. It's quite long. I guess if you work in, in that space and, you know, you run, you run an agricultural property, you're probably used to that but to I guess those of us in different industries and maybe even you know the younger generations coming through we're not used to having to wait such a long time for for feedback of whether what we're doing is is working or not so I've always struggled with that aspect and quite possibly that's what a lot of the younger farmers are also struggling with yeah most likely yeah yeah and and you're right I hadn't seen it quite that way before but you are right and I hadn't seen it because that's what I've always done. But you're right, there, it, it is a slow feedback loop. <laughs> and because it's seasonal, every season is different. So it's difficult to get good feedback. And I guess what happened here, I, when, when I start, when I changed, I could see these amazing things happening that's not supposed to happen. And so I encouraged scientific research and I started taking photos and monitoring things myself. So I guess in agriculture, we need to monitor things over time. Uh, and here, I've been monitoring paddocks now for 20 years, which is some really interesting information coming through on that about how things change and evolve over time. Yeah, and I guess, again, that ties back into what I want to ask next about carbon capture. So you were the recipient of the Carbon Farm of the Year Award in 2007. So I'm guessing you must have been able to demonstrate some pretty impressive carbon capture results but that was 15 years ago and our understanding of the science has grown and changed and Mm. I just was wondering uh, has your carbon sequestration at Winona continued to be monitored I think you said it has and what changes have you seen in in that you know the results of that monitoring? Yep it has continued the the Soil carbon levels have continued to to increase over, over time, and interestingly, the top ten centimeters changed quite rapidly, early days, and stayed somewhere around that. They're still increasing, but not as rapidly. But what is happening is it's it's increasing more and more at depth, like deeper in the soil profile. Now we're measuring to a meter now, and still seeing increase now or now we are seeing increase in in carbon at, at a metre. The only thing that can increase soil carbon are plants. In fact, it's plants that do pretty well everything, including improve the soil, all that, in, in, in nutrient cycling and all that, but in relation to carbon. And the reason that we're getting improvement to depth is that the restoration of, of the grassland 
are just getting more and more diverse. The plants are getting bigger. Consequently, the roots are going deeper, and that's what's building soil carbon to, de- to, to greater depths. Yeah, and it's probably linked to soil structure as well, isn't it? So you're getting bigger pores and air pockets and um, less compaction at, at depth, you know, lower and lower down. Do you monitor that as well? Yes, uh, yeah, that we do in a few ways. While we're on soil structure, we'll never increase soil carbon or get nutrient cycling while we've got compacted soils. It's one of the first things we need to fix. And the best way to fix them is with perennial plants. So cropping programs are uh, all often struggle with that because they're sowing mostly annuals or growing annuals, annual species. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And that that top ten centimeters, as you said, it, as you said, it captures the carbon quite quickly. Yeah. However, if you then go and disturb it, it's going to release it just as quickly. That's correct. Yes, you lose it, you lose it quite quickly, and, and it, it's frustrating being involved in this space for many, many years now. Looking at the science involved in it in early days, and maybe even now a bit to a degree, some of the scientists were saying, "Oh, you couldn't improve soil carbon," uh, and um, which puzzled me because we were getting results here all, the, all that time. But primarily what they were measuring was, was a conventional agriculture. They were correct. Never going to imp- mm. increase soil carbon by using the methods that, that removed the carbon in the first place. So the, 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 the data was correct, but unfortunately didn't look at many, many uh, people that were doing things differently. Yes, and I guess that's where that, that change is is needed and hopefully we will see more and more research on properties like yours where you know we can start to refine that uh, process of how to capture the most carbon yeah what's the most efficient way to do that yeah yeah so do you think that soil carbon capture in agricultural landscapes has the ability to drastically impact the amount of carbon in our atmosphere oh yes there's no doubt about that for just simply from what what's happened here over about a 10 year 10, 12-year period, it'll be now or more, yeah, 12-year period, we've actually removed now 212 212 tonne of carbon dioxide per hectare from the atmosphere that's carbon dioxide, nearly 70 tonne of of carbon. And so where is that being measured from? Is that Winona? Yeah, Winona, yeah, from here, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that's carbon dioxide that's actually been removed from the atmosphere and then stored in the soil. The plants, plants have done that. So, yes, and if you expand that out over all agricultural land on the planet, well, that's going to make a huge difference. Oh, definitely. What is it? Agricultural land is something like, uh, what was it, 40% of I think so, land mass? Like, yeah. yeah, so, yeah, there's huge potential there, most definitely. Now, I can't let you go today uh, without asking you about your kelpies. <laughs> yeah, your, your, famous, your famous kelpies. What traits could I expect in a Winona kelpie? When I started breeding them, which is in the 1970s, was I always wanted to breed a dog that, that was an all-round dog that, that was capable of doing nearly well, anything on the farm, including cattle work. And so that's what I selected for. I also wanted a, a fairly tall, leggy dog that, not a little short-legged fellow that, that had trouble running and moving. So, yeah, that's what I selected for, and that's what they are. And now it's mostly black and tan, these ones are. So that's really what we've done here and they're continuing that way. My son does most of the work with the dogs now. He sort of takes them to the field days and all that sort of stuff that I started many years ago. 
So you've got, I guess your your type is lean, tall, long-legged. Yeah. And I'm guessing that means that they're going to be great at jumping fast, but maybe yeah. not so good at, say, yard work with sheep. Is that? Yeah, no, they're fine at, at yard work. The main, the main problem with dogs that are too heavy, you don't want them heavy. You want them long and lean. <laughs> almost sounded like I was describing a greyhound there for a while. <laughs> they're not quite that long and lean. <laughs> but if they're heavy and chunky, they often aren't that agile. If they're, they're backing or you know, running on sheep's backs, that they need to be agile as well as all that. Uh, and if they're too big and heavy, um, some of the American breeders now that have got Kelpies and I've sold quite a few dogs to America are tending to get them too big and heavy. And they're, mm-hmm. they're, they're they're not they're, they're not lean enough. You've only got to look at something like a, a thoroughbred racehorse, or some of the the, the, the big cats like the cheetahs, and that they are that way. They're long bodied, lean, deep chested, but but not not heavy, chunky. They don't need to be built like a sumo rest sumo wrestler. So why are your kelpies in demand around the world? What is it that people love so much about them? I guess their overall ability, not working ability. I always wanted to breed intelligence into them as well and select for that. That, that That's probably the main thing. But it's surprising how adaptable a Kelpie is. For example, they've sold quite a lot to Norway and, and Sweden, mostly Norway, out of those two countries. When I took the first ones over there, they asked me how they'd handle the winter. And I said, i got no idea how they're going to handle your winter because minus 30. <laughs> So that one concerned me. I didn't know whether they were going to die in the winter or not. But anyway, what they did, those dogs, they, they grew a little bit thicker coat and handled the cold extremely well. It surprised me how they, how they handled it. That's adapted quite quickly mm. to the cold. That That is amazing, being an Australian bred dog, that yeah. that yeah, yeah. adaptation would take place so quickly. Um, yeah. I guess it's, it must have always been there. Must have been there. They didn't grow a longer coat. Yeah. But like, not like a border mm. collie, but they grew, it was thicker, which I found interesting. Mm. They, and, and in some ways, they, the Norwegians said they actually handled the cold better than a border collie. And I said, you've got to be joking. But no, they were, what they said was right. They, because they didn't have long hair on them, the snow didn't stick to the in, into their coat. And, and they ended up mm. like a walking ice block if, they, if the snow, or, or it didn't, didn't cling between the toes on their feet because they, they've got quite tight-knit feet copies have and no hair between mm-hmm. the toes either that had the effect of, of shedding the snow not not making it stay there so that that was very interesting in, in norway they use them for mustering mostly sheep sometimes cattle out of them at really high mountains they, they need to bring them down out of the mountains before the winter and they put them in barns through the, in the winter mm-hmm. so they need to muster muster them out of the mountains yeah, I've always found that to be interesting. Uh, I read a book once about mustering from the fells in in England and and Scotland, I guess as well, and found it yeah interesting how it's just such a different way to what we do here in Australia, especially the how they you know the the sheep are just uh, put up in the fells, for instance, for uh, by themselves to look after themselves for a period of time, and the farmer can often actually see them because I guess the the land is so steep to get up there that it's a long way. It can take an entire day to get there, but you yeah. can see them from your yes. house. Yeah. That's right. And interestingly, the Norwegians, about one in every 10 sheep, they put a bell on them. 
and uh, the bell is has a, a different note to each farm. So if there's a bomb ah. ship up in the hill, they can, they can not only see them, but they can hear the bell. And if it's a note for their farm, they know that that's their sheep, not the neighbour's sheep, because they, they they run all together in the mountains. The sheep do when they just put them all over everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's smart. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, one thing that struck me in this conversation, Colin, is that for a man who says he's not academically trained, you have an extremely, I guess, considered way that you view everything. All your decisions about your property and your native seed and, and your kelpies are all so considered and so based in in science. Yeah, I, I think you've probably got academic training just through what you've seen in your property and your observation skills? Most likely. That's actually been, been said to me before, that, that, that something similar to that. And I guess I guess science probably used to be at least or should be about observation, observation mm. and learning and, and then questioning what you're seeing. And I certainly do that. You most certainly do. Uh, well, I just want to thank you so much for being my guest on our program today. That does wrap up this episode of Beyond the Green Line. Thank you so much for your time today, Colin. Thank you. It's been great fun. And that ends this episode of Beyond the Green Line. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of Beyond the Green Line, brought to you by Moss Environmental. Subscribe to our podcast for your weekly invitation to join the conversation. Until next time... Keep thinking green.